You know, I've been doing this seven years straight, and I'm still the professional that I was when I began. <laughs> Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We uh, pray the true and living God with us tonight as we talk to you about issues and developments relative to Christianity and Mormonism. May he be with you and us tonight. There exists a very popular and accepted attitude amidst nearly every walk of life that says stability and unchangeableness is a virtue. Uh, we applaud men whose eyes are sort of fixed on the northern star and who, so to speak, uh, when all the rest of the world is falling apart, they just remain undaunted. They remain fixed. Uh, Jean Calvin was a man like that. The fictional character in Les Miserables, Javert, was a man fixed and unmovable. Those who approach life with less conventions are often assigned titles and names that are not so nice. In politics, we call people who change positions flip-floppers. And in philosophy, they can be known as wishy-washy. In Christianity, we label them heretics. In Mormonism, they prefer to call them apostates. Uh, same thing almost. Uh, the reason for this is institutions and the men and women who endorse them, they really fear change. They fear uproar. Uh, they fear letting go of what they have worked so hard to establish. Uh, to allow people to challenge the status quo, who question policies and doctrines, and then to allow such to go uncontested, exposes all that has been built uh, by the institution to scrutiny and derision, and worst of all, mutiny, loss of control. Now this type of, of controlling attitude is acceptable in a business or in a corporation because they're there, they're there to make profits and they don't need chaos. Uh, and so we understand that to some extent, possibly, it's acceptable in government, at least in terms of law-abiding citizens and the legislature, but it certainly, to me, is just reprehensible. It's abhorrent in matters of faith. The reason is, is God just does not tell us and start us off as this is it, and then it never changes. It's not that he's changing, but he's constantly working with us to evolve and grow and learn and, and take on new concepts. And when religious institutions become steeped in their tradition, they're so fearful of losing their power and their money base that they refuse to change. And so pastors and reverends and popes and prophets have all glommed on to this type of mentality. And it's the case in Mormonism uh, and it's the case with Christianity, to be quite frank. It's what, uh, the reason that they killed a 19-year-old girl whose name was Joan of Arc. It's why a guy named Socrates was uh, forced to drink the hemlock. It's why Jesus was crucified. It's why Peter, uh, James, and uh, Paul were all martyred. So nevertheless, corporations are going to continue to fire rabble-rousers, for good reason, usually. Uh, politicians who rock the boat will be assassinated, and uh, Christian leaders will be excommunicated and labeled as heretics, but the value and the import and the absolute necessity, the necessity to overturn and examine everything is never gonna fade from the minds of free men and women. 
There will always be people out there who say, no, 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 this is just not right. It's not working. Uh, we're always going to have Winston Smith. He was the protagonist in uh, Orwell's 1984. Uh, there will always be courageous men and women who will think and who will quietly or loudly demand change. Consider this quote from George Bernard Shaw. He said, progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. The next uh, quote, consider this. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored with little statesmen and philosophers and divines. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson. William James said, the world we see that seems so insane is the result of a belief system that is not working. To perceive the world differently, we must be willing to change our belief system. Let the past slip away, expand our sense of now, and dissolve the fear in our minds." End quote. Uh, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius said, if someone is able to show me that what I think or do is not right, I will happily change, for I seek the truth, by which no one was ever truly harmed. It is the person who continues in his self-deception and ignorance who is harmed. Henry David Thoreau, it's never too late to give up your prejudices. Albert Einstein, this is a great one. The mind that opens to a new idea never returns to its original size. Ryan Heifetz says, stay diagnostic even as you take action. And Isaac Asimov said, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. Finally, the definitive insight from the definitive king, Jesus Christ. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In Christianity, church leadership ministries, especially today, it's really tempting to build or create something and then spend the rest of our lives defending and promoting it, um, as it becomes far more important than what God wants for each individual. So Mormons love their power and pastors love their lifestyles, so they back off saying what displeases the congregation and like unfit parents, feed their children sweet garbage as a means to pacify them. If you're a truth seeker, whether you're Mormon or Catholic or Christian or evangelical or Baptist or whatever, um, don't settle for this. Life's too short, eternity too long. And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. Our text is interesting tonight. It comes from Luke chapter 9. This is what it says at the beginning at verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he, Jesus, should be received up, meaning going to be crucified, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. 
So Jesus was preparing to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, and the route he and his disciples were taking was cutting right through Samaria, a Samaritan town, actually, not Samaria. And the Samaritans are forbidden people to the Jews in Jerusalem, essentially. And so Jesus had sent messengers ahead of him to get things ready for passing through to get a room and board or whatever he was, get food ready, whatever it was. And already being sensitive to being kind of second-class citizens to the Jews, the Samaritans were angry that Jesus had his goal to be Jerusalem, that he had his face set to get to Jerusalem and not to kind of hang out with them there. And so uh, it says in verse 53, and they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, quote, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? In other words, being insulted, maybe they saw Jesus get insulted by the Samaritans as they entered in there. Uh, James and John, who are known as the sons of thunder, uh, wanted to vindicate Jesus' good name and character. And so pulling from some stories of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, they said to Jesus, hey, should we call fire down from heaven to torch these people and consume them up? A couple of things to consider uh, about this. First, in the cases where Elijah in the Old Testament called down fire from heaven, uh, well, I think we have graphics to show what the references are. In those two cases, one, Elijah is, all he does is say, God, burn up this wood that's on this altar that I have poured water over. He doesn't say consume everybody. Now, God consumed all the bad people, but Elijah didn't call down and say consume him. He just said burn this wood. And then the second situation, Elijah just said, listen, as sure as I am a prophet, God is going to torch those people. And he did. So it wasn't that Elijah had a spirit or heart to destroy people by fire, and he called down the fire to burn them up. It was simply manifested in the work that he was doing. Uh, this was not the spirit Elijah operated by, but in the case of James and John, they were operating by a spirit of vindictiveness and of get even. Uh, and so listen to what Jesus says to this. But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. We see it today, don't we? Imprecations, curses, heaped upon others by believers in the name of God. People desiring others to be consumed, uh, to see the wicked, the insulters of Jesus, the reprobates burned alive by or in fire. Jesus plainly says uh, to such desires, you don't know what spirit you are of, meaning this is not the spirit that comes from me or my father. For the son of man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What adds insight to this event? is the backstory that occurs prior. This is interesting and we'll get through it quickly. About seven verses before we read this story about going into Samaria, we read this in verse 46. As the, as the apostles were traveling, 
there arose a, a conversation between them about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right, this happened before they get to Samaria. And so Jesus says in verse 47, and he perceives their uh, thoughts of their heart, and he took a child, and he set the child by him, and he said, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receiveth me uh, receiveth him that sent me, for he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. The Lord's message seems to have been lost on these guys. It was one of humility. Be like a little child. Those who are going to be greatest in the kingdom, calm yourselves down as they're walking. Don't worry about who's going to be greatest. Become as a little child. Well, then it says in verse 49, John says, Master, we saw uh, someone casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he didn't follow us. Okay? So this is the next story that happens before them getting to Samaria. And Jesus says in the next verse, Yea, John, those that do, do, doeth noteth, exactly aseth we doeth. Yea, those who doeth not as with exactness as we do it, forbid and castigate and refuse. That was my own verse, if you didn't catch it. I certainly hope you caught it. Um, <laughs> in other words, Jesus didn't say, yeah, John, keep those guys who don't agree and follow us exactly out of here. Refuse them. This is what Jesus really said to John, forbid him not. For he that is not against us is for us. Uh, so we have another instance. John, he wants to forbid this guy. And Jesus says, leave him alone. If he's not against us, he's for us. They're arguing who's going to be greatest. Jesus takes a child and says, look at this. They go into Samaria and the apostles say, should we call fire down? And Jesus again has to say to his apostles, you don't know what spirit you're of. You see? And so we have the apostles presenting one side of how men and women traditionally think. And that's about, you know, we're going to protect God. We're going to do things in God's name to protect him. And God is like, relax, be kind, let people alone. Go ahead, because my will is going to be done through in uh, all of this. The Son of Man is not to come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God in heaven, we uh, thank you for life, and we thank you for uh, truth. And we seek to be seekers of your truth, to worship you in spirit and in truth and nothing else. This life is far too short, Lord. And so put that on our hearts to see uh, what you want to do with us as we abide here. So that when we enter there, you will uh, not be a mystery to us, but recognizable. We pray for our volunteers, our staff, and everybody out there and in our audience tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're almost done with exploring the five points of Calvinism. Tonight, we summarize the tulip. We've hit on total depravity, unconditional election, Limited atonement, that's the tool of the tulip. And we gave a quick summation of irresistible grace last week and how John Calvin describes these things and how many Christians today embrace them. What does Mormonism say about irresistible grace? Really quickly, where five-point Calvinists basically define irresistible grace as the Holy Spirit perfectly fulfilling his work in bringing all God's elect to him Mormonism is interesting. It defines God's uh, irresistible grace 
as gifts God has given to humankind, irrespective of their faith condition uh, or whatever else. What I mean by that is Mormon, Mormons would say God's irresistible grace or the grace that he bestows and cannot be re resisted are everybody will get a resurrected body. Christians agree with that, by the way. Uh, every man and woman, child has free agency. And uh, everybody but a Calvinist would agree with that. Uh, there's a kingdom waiting for every single person who came to this earth. That's a graceful gift given by God to all people. The only exception are people like me who fight against the church. I'm going to outer darkness, uh, according to the LDS. Uh, and then conscience is also, the Mormons call it the light of Christ is given freely to every person. That's one of God's irresistible gifts of grace. And Christians would agree, Romans 1 tells us that we all have conscience, so there's nothing new there. So where Calvinism essentially teaches that God will bring forward to salvation those he has elected by his Holy Spirit, and that grace is irresistible. Uh, the Mormons have associated irresistible grace with gifts that God has bestowed upon all creations. In Calvinism, God does the unmerited, unconditional electing of individuals. And in Mormonism, God gives to all individuals the tools necessary to be able to choose whether they are going to receive him or not. Now just understand when Mormons say receive or find him or not, they mean find Mormonism. They don't mean find God just straight up, a guy out in the wilderness, no more. They mean find Mormonism. And Mormons say God has given everybody an opportunity to have those tools so that they can come get them. All right, the final letter in the tulip stands for, for perseverance of the saints. And it's a logical conclusion to the other four points we've already covered of Calvinism. We could reword perseverance of the saints as once saved, always saved. Calvinist Charlie Hodge says it this way, quote, the perseverance of the saints is to be attributed not to the strength of their love of God, nor to anything else in themselves, but solely to the free and infinite love of God. In other words, another Christian commentator says, you cannot lose your salvation. Because the Father has elected, the Son has redeemed, and the Holy Spirit has applied salvation, those thus saved are eternally secure. They are eternally secure in Christ. Again, as is the case with unconditional election, I wonder why if God makes sure that whoever he has saved is eternally secure out of his love, how come he hasn't just secured everybody? The Calvinist says that, you know, he goes and he elects some and the rest go and burn in hell forever. And so my question is, how, if he's going to elect some, why not elect all? And, and here, in, when it comes to uh, once saved, always saved, if he is going to make sure that those he elected will continue on in salvation and never be lost, why doesn't he do that with everybody? That, that's the thing I want to know. The view of once saved, every, uh, once saved, always saved, whether a person is 
a Reformed believer, a Calvinist or not, is really popular in Christianity today. There are a few reasons for this. First, because salvation in Christianity is not based on our righteousness. It is based upon uh, our believing. So therefore, you can't lose your salvation through unrighteousness. If I was saved as an alcoholic adulterer at a bar, I heard the message, the Holy Spirit spoke, and I believed Jesus and was saved then and experienced it. I wasn't saved because I was in a good place. So the Christian says, therefore, if I get myself into another bad place, it wasn't my goodness that saved me to begin with. Therefore, once saved, always saved applies. Okay? And it's a reasonable thing. How could salvation be lost? You wonder, it couldn't be, um, and I would just suggest salvation cannot be lost. You don't lose it because of your bad actions, because we do, we commit sin every day. And so if it was tenuous like that, then we would have to be like the LDS and constantly trying to earn and keep our salvation. But I would suggest salvation can be left behind right where you want it, that you can walk from it. Now, most people uh, would say that's just not true. I think biblically, we have plenty of evidence to prove it is. So um, there are a number of passages in scripture that suggest once saved, always saved is true. These are the main ones, ready? John 10, 27, 28, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's pretty strong language. I believe that to be true. No other man is, uh, any man is gonna pluck us out of his hand. But there are passages that say we can pluck ourselves. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I believe that. John 6.47, Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me has everlasting life. Again, I would agree. But if someone decides not to believe on him, that's the big debate, then you would have to wonder. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation. This is a great passage. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And finally, Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am persuaded, it says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, fantastic passage to reassure us that nothing's going to steal us away. And I believe that, that he is our king and he is going to protect us and bring us to the kingdom. That passage is very far afield from the LDS teachings that, boy, you, you can't waver. You've got to do everything possible uh, or else you're going to lose the salvation. Not true. But we've shown in the past there are double the amount of passages that suggest, and this is for mature believers, that you have to grow in your faith or you can become weak and then walk from your own salvation. But don't worry about that now. So there it is, Calvinism as a summary compared with LDS soteriology. Let me do a quick graphical review and to show you the two views of the tulip and then give you some insights of what I think in between. You ready? Under total depravity, we have 
Calvinism says man will not choose God on their own. We're spiritually dead. Mormonism says all people are born children of God with heavenly parentage. We know that is absolutely uh, false compared to what scripture says. Uh, I would suggest Calvinism presents a far better biblical picture of the truth uh, than Joseph Smith's Hellenistic fantasy that says we had a pre-existent state where our heavenly father and heavenly mother created us and said, go down and get bodies. That is completely from Plato. It's completely borrowed, and it is not biblical in any sense. Scripture is clear that humanity fell from grace because Satan tempted Adam. We fell into a state of sin, and uh, we are spiritually dead as a result. And Jesus Christ, therefore, said you must be born again. You've been born once of your flesh. You must be born again to be able to be spiritually discerning. So while I agree with the idea of total depravity, meaning none of us in our own natural state would choose God, we're too interested in sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, normally. We might have some good things about us, but we wouldn't normally choose God. I don't believe in the idea of of total depravity the way the Calvinists say, here's why. I think God has built into this creation his way of reaching all people. And I believe it's through the cosmos he's done that, through through, uh, the Bible, the written word, uh, through the conscience that uh, we talked about a minute ago, through Christ coming to this earth, we have that witness. We have the witnesses of believers and their lives and the love they share that are calling out to us. And so through all of those things, God has removed the totalness of the depravity and got us to be able to recognize, and Romans 1 says, therefore, we are without excuse. We all have a scene, all right? Can be hair splitting, but uh, we'll go from there. On point number two, unconditional election. Calvinists say God elects some to salvation. God elects some to salvation. Actually, it's very few if you think about it. Of his own will and not due to anything that anybody has done. All right? Mormons say Heavenly Father wants all to be saved by their own free will and agency. Of all the five points we've covered, this one is the most reprehensible to me in my understanding of God and his word. We received an email from Curtis A few weeks ago, or last week on the show, I asked this question. Why would God, who is love, we know that, why would he only predestinate some to salvation according to his own goodwill and pleasure and not from anything that the individuals do and not predestinate all? Well, Curtis wrote us and he quoted Proverbs 5, uh, 3, 5, 6, and, and he started his email off with this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Sean, and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. I don't think Curtis realizes that two feet above my head, that very verse is on the wall for people who come to church here. Anyway, Curtis asked this question. Listen to what he asks. Let me turn your question around on you. Why would God not predestinate people to destruction? And what scripture do you have to back that up? Uh, The scriptures I have are God is love. Um, In him is no darkness at all. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoso believed on him should be saved. I, I, you know, 
from his question, Curtis seems to be trying to get us or me to believe that love, a loving God, is equivalent to God casting most of creation into hell forever and ever and ever. It's absolutely insane. Uh, you know, when we cover LDS issues and they call, and there's an honest LDS person who really reveals their theological heart, I love it. Because they, they simply kind of hang themselves. That's the case with the Calvinists too. If you get one to really talk and to really honestly express how it comes out, in the end, what it is is God is this sovereign being that has picked a handful of people just because he willy-nilly wanted to and is having everybody else tortured for eternity in real flames. And they love it. I mean, it's, 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 I would rather be a Mormon than a Calvinist. I'll tell you that right now. Hands down. Uh, because they have got things so twisted that they call God's love him torturing people. I can't comprehend it. Now, they stand on God's sovereignty. He is sovereign. I agree. You might think I don't. You're wrong. I believe he is sovereign. But it's stuff like this that made Joseph Smith stand up and say, no, no way. I'm going to create my own thing. And here it is, and people bought it. But hear me clearly. Does the Bible say God elects some people and nations to do specific things? Of course it does. Does the Bible say his will will be accomplished? Abso-freaking-lutely. Absolutely. Will God elect, and I equate electing to choosing or calling people or nations to do and perform certain things as a means to bring about his overall plan in the scheme and scope of this world? <laughs> Obviously, he does that. He does that, he does that when babes drown. He does that through war. He does, I'm not saying he's doing it. He does this stuff by his knowledge of what's going on and he orchestrates. It's painful, it's rewarding, but he is moving all of it to his sovereign place and will. And we don't see the whole picture. We just see one little sliver of the parade passing by through eternity. But he's got beginning and end in his hand. And he knows what has to happen. And he allows it in love to bring about a loving purpose in the end. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think God is good. I think God is love. I think God is not a despot nor a fascist. And he honors freedom. And he doesn't crush nor control it. Now, I know that philosophically it seems impossible. Either God, he makes things happen and gets his way, the philosophers would say, or he lets things happen and he doesn't. And I think there's another answer. We're not talking about philosophy, though. We're talking about God. So without going into every nuance, we're going to wrap this up. I would suggest that God is able to bring about his loving, good, sovereign will while somehow honoring man's ability to choose. How? It's by his foreknowledge. Scripture uses that word very carefully in real good places. Yes, he created all with certain attributes, kind of like chess pieces that can move on their own. They can only move certain ways, some of us. Some of us have free reign over the whole deal. 
But bottom line, he created us with attributes, and Satan comes in, and light comes in, and those things change and choose, but through it all, he knows how the game is going to end. The king's going to win. And, 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 and so he's got it planned out. He knows. And we trust in that sovereign God. By and through that foreknowledge, he will have his will accomplished. And his will is loving. It's redemptive. And it never fails. Consider two passages. 1 Timothy 2.3. Remember this passage. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. So where the LDS say it's up to the individual and the Calvinist says God controls it all, I would suggest both. It's in his will and through his foreknowledge, he lets free will uh, operate until his purposes are brought to pass. Point number three, limited atonement. Uh, Jesus atoned, uh, Calvinists say Jesus atoned only for those who God elected. Uh, of course, LDS say Jesus atoned for all the sin of the world. And again, Mormonism has it right on that count. I mean, he paid for the sins of the entire world. Of course, the LDS say he did it in the garden. And the cross doesn't mean anything. But bottom line, uh, uh, he paid for the sins of the entire world. Next point, irresistible grace. Calvinists say the Holy Spirit will accomplish bringing all of God's elect to him. Just God's elect, by the way. Mormonism says humankind has been graciously gifted with all the necessary tools to make it back to the LDS father, by the way. And then finally, we have uh, the last one, perseverance of the saints. And Calvinists say none whom God has elected will ever be lost. Mormonism says through bad choices, many, even the very elect, will be lost. And through good choices, even the very elect will find Mormonism. So I would say in light of scripture that free will reigns and while believers uh, redeemed could never lose their salvation, scripture is clear they are free because God loves freedom to walk away if they want. Be tough to do in my opinion. The interesting thing about both five-point Calvinism in summary and Mormonism is when their precepts are taken seriously and collectively, they lead people in both cases to bondage. Um, we know this is true about Mormonism, but ironically, it's true about uh, five-point Calvinism as well. Five-point Calvinists are forever having to have to prove that they are one of God's elect. And you prove that through your righteousness. And you have the same picture that we have with Mormonism the exact same bondage which Jesus came to free us from. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Uh, we have David in Dayton, Ohio, Curtis in Clearwater, Florida, Jason from Madison, Ohio. Stay with us, you guys. We'll be right back. Just take a look at these two spots. These two... For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to 
No clue at all that I'm coming back on. Uh, everybody on the staff is just sitting back drinking beer, and, and, and here I am left without being ready at all. I'm contacting the union in the morning. All right, uh, we're, let's go with David in Dayton, Ohio on line one. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, I got a question, and then if you wouldn't mind, my wife would also like to ask you one. Absolutely. Okay, so we have a little boy, and uh, we're wanting to get him to know Jesus. And uh, we bought this book. It's called The Picture Bible, and it's like a comic book. And I was wondering if you think that would be a good idea, or should we just read from the Bible itself? Oh, I think comic book's great. You know, that'd be great for a little kid to, to uh, learn from the, uh, you know, that's at his level, and and uh, the word, I mean, it's tough for all of us to comprehend that. So I think it's a wise decision that you guys got in that. I think that's a beautiful thing. Okay, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, let me put my wife on. She is former LDS, and I believe she has a question for you. Oh, good. It <laughs> sounds like I, my I wife. Well, yourself. I did not, I'm sorry, it's just, that time of night, I had no idea what Grace even was until I saw your show, and I grew up in the Mormon Church, and I left it about when I left home when I was 18, and I just want to say to the callers, or to the listeners, um, it feels good to get your name off the record, so I did that, and I thought it was great. Did that, that help you? Yeah, I, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it helps you mostly, but... It also helped me in practical terms because now they don't come to my house to knock on the door <laughs> periodically, you yeah. know, irregardless of, you know, my having asked them not to in the past. They, yeah. they don't do that anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, there's benefits in that way. What's your first name? Alisa. Alisa, thanks for watching, and uh, God bless you and your little family there. Yeah, can I ask you a really difficult question? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
right. So one of the things that's been kind of difficult as far as uh, my faith is because I kind of know just a little bit about um, the Egyptian god Horus and people always comparing him to Jesus and saying that, you know, Jesus is a story made up that's copied from the Egyptian god Horus. So I thought since you know a lot more about religion than I do, you can shed some light on that for me. Okay, so the question, again, to summarize it for me. Um, can you give me a little insight on why is there such a strong comparison between the Egyptian god Horus and oh. um, Jesus? Because there's, like, similarities in oh. the two stories. Yeah, okay. It's kind of something that has been kind of a roadblock in my having you know, faith. And I, I'm sure there's other people out there. And so I thought maybe you could kind of address that for us. Since you know a lot more about religion than I do. Oh, well, maybe not. You know, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the Horus myth and all the other uh, teachings going back to Zoroastrianism. And there's many commonalities, the Babylonian um, uh, stuff, many commonalities between the biblical story uh, the, uh, with flood, uh, Gilgamesh is another one with Adam and Eve story, virgin birth, uh, resu yeah. uh, Christ, resurrection, S certainly. Yeah. But, but the, 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 I mean, you can look at it cynically or you can look at it uh, uh, through eyes of faith. And I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't uh, look at things cynically because you will grow if you are willing to learn and look and listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was Satan, and I'm, this is my take on it, I would make sure that every culture had the Jesus story coming forward from it. I would make sure that every one of them had a picture of a story of, of the Son of God. And I would make sure that all of them were replicated prior to Christ's coming. But the thing that, you're, that you have on your side showing that Christ is the real McCoy and not a counterfeit is mm -hmm. biblical prophecy, which you cannot, you cannot compare to anything else out there the biblical prophecy that has come to pass from the Old Testament into the New, that is one. The other one that is substantive is non-Christian Jewish historians. Um, they write of Jesus 12. And this is why I say this. Christ died and we believe he was resurrected. Well, that could be another story like Gilgamesh or one of these. However, he had 12 guys who witnessed him as a resurrected being, who lost everything, suffered horrible uh, uh, treatment and lives, and died for that witness separately, not even as a gang of guys. Their 12 witnesses confirm the validity of the resurrected Christ, whereas the other ones all come about by and through myth, and we have no uh, real witness of, of those myths being um, valid. That's the best I have for you. But it is a troubling okay. one. I mean, I, I have to admit that will shake people's faith if they've never heard yeah. of it. And it has and continues to shake my faith. However, um, I also have a lot of hope or let's say faith in, I don't know, I, my journey into being a real believing Christian has been a long one. Yeah. And um, I'm not alone. You know, and a lot of people are going to be like me where they're looking at it, you know, scholastically and things like that. And But, you know, I'm just going to keep learning and definitely trying to learn more about Jesus and Christianity because I didn't even know 
I didn't even understand Grace at all. I mean, I only started watching your show, like, you know, a few months ago. But anyway, I and guess listen, I'll let you get to the next caller. But Alicia, stay I thought that that was a really interesting question. I never heard anyone pose on your show. And it's been something that's kind of been weighing on my mind. But I'll she, keep searching and, you know. Hopefully, Alicia. hopefully in the future, I will have um, a really good relationship you, you, and a really strong faith. And, and I don't want to psych myself into believing, you know, or just getting you know, emotionally worked up. And that's why I, I want to believe because I really believe. You know, Alicia, so, I don't know. <laughs> Alicia, I'm teasing. Hey, listen, two things. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, check out Norman Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler, and his writings and responses to this type of stuff. Uh, okay. And you can look at James White. I think he does some stuff mm -hmm. on this as well. And yeah. then, uh, uh, well, oh, stay on the line. And it, relative yeah. to your faith uh, coming out of Mormonism in Christ, yeah. uh, we want to send you a book. So stay on the line, okay. and we'll get your address and send you one. I would love that. And Okay. Thank you again for doing your show. I just really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's our it's our privilege and blessing. Hold on. All right, and I don't normally say this, but God bless you. And God bless you. Thanks. Thank you. All right, let's go to Jason in Madison, Ohio. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. John Craney. Yes. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you? Oh, I'm in such a predicament. I don't know what to do, and I'm calling you for advice. You kind of get what you pay for, but go ahead. <laughs> Let me just tell you real quick, because this might you might get a chuckle out of this one. I've been, you know, I've been watching you for the last three or four years and stuff, and I've watched all your shows. The Mormon missionaries are banned from coming to my house because, for one, I'm argumentative because I show them scripture, and I'm too legalistic. I try to find loopholes in their belief system. Okay. But now, I like to talk a lot, so you have to excuse me for a second. You're not alone in this call. Uh, keep going. <laughs> and, and now it's the J-dubs that are coming to me. Oh. And watching you tonight just kind of reminds me of the talks I've been having with them. But I must admit, they left me speechless the other day when I talked to them. Really? Yeah, because they, now, going back real quick, remember God says, I share my glory with no one. Yeah. And what did Jesus say? That when he ascends into heaven, that God will, you know, share his glory with Jesus as well. Mm. Back again, correct? Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, they, the Jehovah Witnesses told me that Jesus was confused when he said that. Mm. Interesting. Hey, listen, something that might help, Jason, is next week we are going to embark on a, uh, a study on uh, God and the Trinity and the non-Trinity and all that. And I think that's going to help with uh, some of this stuff relative to sharing glory, etc., and so uh, hang on for that one, if that helps at all. Sounds good. Sounds great. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it, and keep up the good work. Thanks for watching, Jason. God bless you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Had uh, dinner tonight with a, a, a dear uh, friend, and uh, uh, he's LDS, and we were talking you know, about the wisdom of when you are LDS, if you're coming to know the truth, 
and uh, how it works with your family. And, you know, if you go on our website at www.hotm.tv, we have a segment over to the right-hand side that says the most commonly asked questions, and we do a little video clip on each thing. And one of them says, what do I do if I have come to know the truth and my spouse is still LDS, or what do I do with my family? And a couple points I just want to point out here to you who, who are listening, and then we're going to go to Curtis in Florida. Uh, it's not typically... Now, sometimes it is, but typically it's not a spouse's or a father's job to bring adult children out of Mormonism. The emotional ties are too strong. It's too difficult. And so what we do is we pray that for our spouses, we become Jesus to our spouses and families. We support them. I, I've said many times, I used to drive my kids to seminary, early morning seminary, as a full-blown Christian anti-Mormon and, and support your family as Christ would and not worry about you taking on the responsibility to remove them. Now, if your wife comes along or husband and says, you know, I've been wondering about those gold plates. You might say, yeah, I've been kind of wondering about them too, you know, and, and just kind of bring them along slowly. But it's not our job because, listen, the LDS church, I've seen this many times, they will destroy a family. They will say, you get rid, that, that wife better kowtow to the, the party line here, or you leave them. They do that. And that's, that's when the perniciousness comes in. You want to keep your family together. God wants you to keep your family and marriage together. So don't use the fact that you've come to know Jesus as the reason to destroy your family, right? So just consider that as we go on. All right, we're going to go back to Jordan, Norfolk, Virginia. No, we're going to do Curtis in Clearwater, Florida, uh, on line two. Curtis, you're on Heart of the Matter. How's it going, Sean? I'm going good. Okay. Um, real quick, I called you last week, and I sent you an email uh, other than the one that you quoted earlier on the show. And uh, I, I told you both times that even though I'm not a Calvinist, I know that's what you're specifically addressing. I am someone that believes that God does predestine people to destruction. Yeah. And your biggest complaint seems to be that why does God send people to hell forever? But I don't believe that. I told you last time that I'm an annihilationist. So if, well, that's if convenient. Believe... That's convenient yeah. to be an annihilationist and also believe that he sends people to damnation from his own goodwill and choice. That's really convenient to have that belief, Curtis. Annihilationism is refuted by most biblical, Christian biblical scholars. It's the Seventh-day Adventists that, that uh, like the idea of annihilationism. Is that what you well, are? I, uh, I sent you an email last week, and I, I asked you to talk about this a little bit more. I, you didn't have to speak with me about it on the air, and I know you don't have to. No, Curtis, but it's not that. We my, get a my... couple hundred emails a week. I don't read them, and so I didn't get, but I did get the one where you, where you quoted the scripture. But go ahead. Go ahead. I've told you, I told you in the whole annihilationist argument, the reason that, the reason I believe that, is I, I actually did not believe that to begin with. I read that after reading the Bible. Okay. Um, that's not something I'm very particularly strong about, because I do know that there's parts, especially in Luke, when there's the Proverbs of Lazarus and all that, yeah. that makes the point pretty clear that there is potentially eternal damnation in the eternal hellfires, but it's just something that I personally feel. Okay, so, well, we don't... I mean, but my question is, again, if that's true, do you have any actual scriptural refutation, refutation of the idea that God predestines people to destruction? Because, I mean, again, you also told me last week that you would address Romans 9, and Romans 9 very specifically tells, 
I mean, even quote doesn't, Genesis when it says... Doesn't Romans uh, 9 say what if? Isn't it? Isn't Romans it, 9 uh, when it talks about uh, uh, sending uh, uh, creations uh, to help of God's free will and choice? Doesn't it say, I mean, couldn't he? I mean, let me turn to it. If, if memory serves... Um, well, it, it says that... Uh, isn't it, isn't it an example? Genesis at this part, but... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Yeah. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Okay, and it's talking about nation. Right it's there, talking God about God na- loved and hated people before they it, were born. It's, it's talking about nation. It that- it's talking about nations there. You think God hated? You think God who is love, according to John, Hated Esau? I don't oh, know what God you worship. In the context of the rest of the passage. No, the passage the is speaking of nations. People and their, and their uh, responsibility to God. And you will say to me, how does he still find fault? For uh, who can resist his will? I don't who are ha- you, O oh man, to answer back to God? How does that refer to nations? I don't, That's clearly talking to individuals. I don't dispute that God uses heinous individuals, created, knew what they would do, predestined them, to uh, hell and the lake of fire. That's not my point. My point is, what's his ultimate goal? You're missing that altogether. You've missed it through about 20 different inferences over the past four shows. I can understand. I, I told you my last time that my ultimate, what I ultimately believe, and ultimately I don't care what you what ultimately I believe. believe. I'm talking about scripture. I'm talking about uh, what, what does it say in the Bible? I personally believe, I know you rolled your eyes at this the last time I said it, because I know it's kind of within doc, Mormon doctrine about there being a big celestial play being handed out, but I think... Don't give us your movie example again. Curtis, just listen to me, please. Just get what point I'm trying to make. I believe God is sovereign. I believe before creating one single individual, he knew the whole play or movie you speak of. I believe he knew before creating any of them that many of them were going to choose death versus life. I believe that he allowed all of that and allows all of that. I believe there is a place for uh, punishment or, or purging, hell, lake of fire. I just don't believe it's eternal and that he, before creating anybody, said, I'm gonna create most of them for eternal death or damnation and a few to come and be with mine of my own goodwill and pleasure. It's all about what his ultimate will is. You're missing that. And what you're doing is you're... If God did... If that is what God wanted to teach, if God wanted to teach that he did create people for the specific purpose of destroying them, if, if Romans 9 doesn't specifically say that, what would the Bible have to say to make that point? I think I mean, it does... It tells I think, you God created some per pots for, for noble purposes, some okay. for destruction. And if you say that God predestined Pharaoh to destruction, then why does it... Why is it so much more of a stretch to say that God predestines everyone who's destruction? Your problem is with destruction. destruction. Your problem is with your reading the English interpretation of these words. Give this a chance, Curtis. Wait till you see what it means when it says perished and destroy. What uh, brimstone means in the Greek. Wait till you read what it means where the fire is of the lake of fire. Do you know the location of it? Right off the bat, Curtis? it's in the presence of the Lord. That's right. Like so if else. the lake of fire, if the lake of fire is in the presence of the the Lamb and His angels, I does know it, that. Does, I know I you know do. I know. I just said if. 
Doesn't it seem like that's a place of purging rather than destruction? Doesn't that well, bring about well, the whole picture? Synonyms. You could purge and destroy at the same time. You're going to destroy. I mean, you're going to destroy. Exclusive ideas. You're going to destroy the, the, the evil and bad that's within those who have rejected him. You cannot in good conscience tell me, Curtis, that God who is love, that is a description of him. He is love. He's also just. He tells us in first. Do you first, deny that God hates? He, you he, deny that God hates? He hates sin. He hates doers of iniquity. He That's all of Esau us. Before he was born. That's all of us. If he hates doers of iniquity, why did he choose to elect some? Why? He didn't have to elect anybody. Why did he choose he to elect some? If he hates iniquity, if he hates iniquity, if he hates iniquity, Curtis, if he hates iniquity, why did he choose to elect some? You're asking me what the motivation for God's election for some? That question can be thrown at any Christian. Wait, wait, Why would God give, give me and destroy others to anybody. You're telling me that God, who is love, do you agree with that? I believe that God is love, but He is capable of hate, and for a reason. Well, we disagree, Curtis. We disagree. So you say that God doesn't hate? I mean, he does not hate people. In the scripture he, does he does not hate people. And I will disagree so with you. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You're taking it out of context. Esau. You think you can read that one, one verse out and say, don't you know what Esau represented? He represents it's the flesh. one verse from Genesis he represents the flesh. As a he represents the flesh, Curtis, throughout all scripture. Uh, uh, Jacob was a man of faith. Esau was a man of the flesh. That's all it represents. God hates the flesh. Those who live by the flesh will have that flesh purged and destroyed. That's all it means. You want to say a God who is love also hates people. I completely differ with you. Change the channel. We're done. I don't well, believe it. I don't care about, about it because in the context of scripture, and that's what we're going to prove over the next few weeks, in the context of scripture, we're gonna see how this stuff plays in. This is, it's unconscionable to believe in this type of God, that he, knowing what everyone is going to do, has decided to destroy almost all of them, but not of anybody's good goodness, he just willy-nilly chose a few to elect to salvation. And those are the perfect ones, the rest, Suffer. Now, he's thrown in annihilation, Curtis, as a real convenient thing. Well, they're not going to suffer forever. They're going to be consumed completely and gone away. Well, that's still kind of terrible. But nevertheless, why? Why create them in the first place? If all they're going to do is end up being annihilated or burning forever. It doesn't make sense. But Calvin, that's why I'm so against the man's theology. He introduced this. It's taught in every university in America, Calvinism. And this is the mindset that you get out. He says he's not a Calvinist, but he's embraced Calvinist thought. We're going to uh, Jordan in Norfolk, Virginia. Jordan, you're in heart of the matter. Hey, Sean, how are you? Dry mouth. <laughs> hey, I, um, I needed some advice and some prayer about my brother. Yeah. Hey, so um, when we were teenagers, he joined the Mormon Church, uh, and I joined the Catholic Church that um, actually encountered Christ or God. Um, about 10 years have passed since that time. I have met the Lord, and he's reforming my life, and my brother is noted. Um, and he got a call from some missionaries, and he sees it as 
not only a call uh, to Christ, but a call to the Church of the Restoration. Um, and I have politely argued him down. It doesn't work. Uh, and he has made it clear to me, I think, speaking through the Spirit, that it just built my tactic, as you were just talking about a few minutes ago, of trying to uh, rob the cross of its power. It's just not working. So I, I really need prayer um, to just show him Christ crucified, but also I, I need some advice about what steps to take as we move forward. You know, uh, Jordan, first of all, what's your brother's name? His name is Chase. Spell that. Chase. Oh, Chase. Okay, listen, everybody who prays uh, for people, if that's your call in your life, pray for Chase. Listen, we just talked about families getting involved. Sometimes, Jordan, the only thing you're going to do is pray. And you're going to be Jesus to him and love him. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I've said this forever since doing the ministry. I know people who are LDS who are very good Christians and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning blood, and they put aside all the other stuff and they're still in there. So I, I, we, we, I just can't stand the lies of Mormonism. And, but people can be in Catholic church and they can be in all these different crazy churches and be good Christians. So in faith, trust the Lord that he is wooing him to bring him closer and closer through his spirit. If he opens up dialogue, I would talk to him about Sin, I would talk to him about Jesus and being born again. Born again is what I would focus on. Otherwise, let somebody else do the work through the prayer that you're offering that God will reach him in that way and take the blinders off his eyes. The best I can do, my brother. Thank you. You know, that, that's really good advice. Um, it really is. Uh, I, just, I just saw your program recently as I went back to study Mormonism again. Um, and now through the eyes of faith, I, I really see things before that, about them that I did not about their doctrines. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I really appreciate your ministry. I appreciate everything that you're doing. Thanks, Jordan. You might not want to recommend me to your brother. I usually don't uh, have a very good impact on people who are really firmly in there. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we love you, brother. Thanks. We are out of time. Curtis, I want you to know I love you. We differ in opinions, and I just ur urgently uh, argue that's my nature, but it's out of love. If we were sitting in a, a restaurant or bar or something, I would be your friend, and it wouldn't be anything. But uh, when it comes to sh this show, we're going we're gonna to debate. So we love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.